This is a Word Fitly Spoken, by words about reading the Scriptures, about preaching the Scripture, and about the mission on which the Scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi, joined by a very special guest today, the Reverend Peter Prangy of Bethany Lutheran Church, Wisconsin Synod in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And did I get the name right? Did I? You got it right. All right. There's a first time for everything. Great. (laughs) Good, good. So here we are. Uh, We have a Wisconsin Synod historian with us to talk about the Wauwatosa theology. But before we dig into that, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to the audience? Well, I am Pete Prangy. I uh, currently am serving at Bethany Lutheran Church in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I graduated from our Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary back in 1998 and was originally assigned to a congregation in Jacksonville, Florida. That's where my dear wife was a member. She wasn't my wife at that time, but uh, <laughs> one of those coincidences where uh, the Lord moves you to a special place to find a special person. It was not love at first sight by any stretch of the imagination. But after about four years of service there, we started to date. And actually, we got married, had our first child, and I took my first call all within one year. And we actually stayed married. Those three big (laughs) life changes. (laughs) So yeah, I, I received a call to Morton Grove, Illinois, which is a near north side suburb of Chicago. And that's where I've spent the majority of my ministry. Spent a little time in, in East, East Tennessee, Johnson City, and have been at Bethany now the last couple of years. So, Well, two parishes in the South, so you know, you've, yep. you've won me over. It's good to <laughs> there you go. You know, we're just... Yeah, Jacksonville is Jacksonville is not actually Florida. It's more south, south Georgia or southern Georgia. <laughs> right. There's a lot of Leonard Skinner, you know? Yep. When I first got assigned to Jacksonville, I had this idea of, you know, the Florida beaches, but I found out pretty quickly that Jacksonville is southern Georgia. Yeah, if you watch too much Miami Vice, you'll get the wrong impression um, exactly. regarding Florida, so... <laughs> I also noticed in in biographies that I've read of you, Pete, that you are also fairly involved at a, official levels within the Wisconsin Synod. The hymnal, is that right? Or was I reading that wrong? Yeah, I have been. Our Commission on Worship developed a hymnal supplement back okay. in, I think it was published in 2008, if I'm not mistaken. So it was that was 15 years after our current hymnal had been published. And it was anticipating another hymnal coming out within about 15 years. And in fact, our church body's working on a hymnal, hymnal right now. I think they're scheduled to publish that in 2021, if I'm not mistaken. So gotcha. it was kind of the kind of the in-between marker where you kind of see what was working, what wasn't wasn't working to provide some supplementary material to our to our hymnal. So I, I served on that. And I also, for um, 13 years, actually served on our church body's commission on interchurch relations, which is a little bit different than the CTCR of the Missouri Synod. Our doctrinal committee is really our conference of presidents. The CICR is, in some respects, kind of a study or a working committee for 
our conference of presidents where we're interacting with with other church bodies, not only those that uh, we're currently in fellowship with, but also interacting with other Lutheran church bodies, especially around the world within the United States. I had the privilege as I served on that committee to attend the 2013 LCMS convention as the official Wells observer. Um, got introduced <laughs> to the convention, everything. Not that anyone remembers me, but I was there. I was there. You were there. You yep. were there. I mean, there are a lot of things to be impressed with, but just the way that the business of the convention was handled compared to, you know, our little church body doing paper ballots still. It was just really kind of impressive to see all the technology that went into pulling off that that convention. But also just really I appreciated a lot of the the good things that I that I heard at that convention. So sure. um, it was really, really a joy to serve in that capacity. Yeah, technology is great when it works, but I'll tell you what, when the when the electronic ballot goes down, it's it's just a knuckle dragging experience. But everybody forgets how to count. <laughs> so uh, well, yeah, well, but anyway, yeah, but it is it's our privilege to have you here, and you know we we've been looking forward to this. The Wabatosa theology. If there is one expert in the United States, probably in the world, on this subject, it is it's you, Pete. And we thank you so much for for giving up some of your time to come and talk with us. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you if I'm the expert on the Wabatosa theology, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll do my best. Yeah. Well, and so we've been throwing out this term uh, the last few minutes here. So what would be a good, concise definition of the Wauwatosa theology or sometimes the Wauwatosa gospel? Yeah. I would say most people who are familiar with those terms, Wauwatosa theology, Wauwatosa gospel, within our circles, within our Wisconsin synod, they would normally say, well, that's the fact that we do you know, biblical exegesis. That's what the Wauwatosa theology is all about. It's about going back to the scriptures, digging into the original languages of Hebrew and Greek, and really understanding what is it that Isaiah is saying here? What is it that Matthew's writing here or Paul is writing to to these different congregations and understanding not only the the grammar, but also the history of those words. That's certainly a very workable, working definition of the Wauwatosa theology. I would say, though, it's it's certainly more than that. Not that that's at all unimportant, because, of course, that's really the most important aspect of what those Wauwatosa guys were getting at. I would say when it's all said and done, what the Wauwatosa guys were really trying to do, Kaler in particular, was to take the church back again to the Reformation principles of Luther. Not just that, of course, Scripture is our sole source of, of doctrine, but also that we be very careful about not falling into systems of thinking where we're just locked in to, you know, how Lutherans say it, we've always done it this way, right? <laughs> <laughs> that, that we actually take a step back and ask ourselves, how, how is it that we got here? Doctrine, practice, our, our practices. Why do we do it this way? And what's the history behind all of this? Because we all know that it's much easier for us as human beings to simply fall into a pattern with what's familiar, with what's comfortable, with what's easy, 
and the Wauwatosa guys were really saying along with, with Luther, repentance is a daily thing where we go back again and again and, and try and view things from the proper perspective. After all, of course, that's what repentance is. It's metanoia. It's, it's the changing of our minds. And that's not an easy thing to do because, again, we're just, we're just happier having a neat system where everything fits in its proper place. And when someone comes with a question, you just have the easy answer because I can just pull it off the shelf or, you know, pull it out of my database and, and here it is. And the mm-hmm. Wauwatosa guys would say, well, it's not quite that simple. It's not quite that simple because the scriptures don't treat those questions of life in a, a rule-based type of way. So they were, they were really attacking legalistic thought, Phariseeism, where we just have our list of rules to follow and this is how we do church. We've really been building up to this. This has kind of been a theme of Zelman, wouldn't you say, the last two or three podcasts, numerically? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. And this is one of the things and uh, that we've been trying to highlight here and why we feel it's so important to look at what these men have to say. Mm-hmm. Because we're not just studying this for the bare history. Right. But, you know, do these men have something to say to us today? And I would certainly say that they do. Some of the issues that they're dealing with are perennial issues for the Lutheran church. Absolutely. And, you know, they're always also very careful to say that when you go back and study these things yourselves, it's likely that you will come to the exact same conclusions that our Lutheran forefathers did. You should even expect that in most cases you will draw the same conclusions but now you'll actually understand why they drew the conclusions they did. And so when people come and ask you questions, why is it that we do it this way? You're able to say, well, let me tell you. And this isn't just, I'm quoting, you know, this church father or that church father or my district president or whomever. It's, this is what the scriptures have to say. This is, this is what we believe on the basis of the scriptures. This is what we confess as Lutherans according to our our Lutheran confessions. That's a valuable study, even if at the end of the day, you come to the same conclusion that that somebody 400 years ago came to. Yeah, so you don't come to the rather ironic statement of saying something like, we believe in sola scriptura because Luther did. You know? Exactly. <laughs> right. And we worship Luther. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. Or, you know, because of the brief statement, we... We believe and confess, you know, insert whatever we would like to there. Exactly. Um, there is that temptation. There is, there is that temptation. And we see this time and time again. And I don't know the root cause of it, maybe just human nature, but and maybe just lack of preparation. But there is a temptation when faced with a difficult question or sometimes even an easy question, not to fall back on the scriptures, but to say, well, have you looked at him 473? Right. Or... Or have you looked at, have you read this guy? Right. And oftentimes, I think it's done sincerely, you know, it right. perhaps is seen as, as a bit more accessible, but living post-Reformation is a blessing in a lot of ways, least of which is the Bible in a common language right? Uh, that people may share and read and, and have at their disposal. And of course, the wisdom of 
all the great men who have come before us. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I think sometimes the Wauwatosa guys get a bad rap in that some suggest that, oh, those Wauwatosa guys, they say that dogmatic should be thrown out the window, that those conclusions that have been drawn in the past are of no value to us whatsoever. And they would say nothing could be further from the truth. They are very, very valuable to understand and study why it is that those theological conclusions were drawn by these men. And again, that in large part, you're going to find that you're in agreement with those conclusions, but you shouldn't just accept their conclusions without digging into the source, the primary source material material yourself. Because while they may have understood all of the issues involved in the conclusions that they drew, if you're just taking their conclusion, but not understanding the nuance of it, you're likely going to use their conclusions as a hammer in dealing with precious souls, rather than if you understood the nuance, you would use it with a feather. Um, And it would actually have the evangelical intent that those original men had in their study and the conclusions that they drew. So with that being said, and a great, great summary there, who would be the key figures in the Wauwatosa theology? Well, normally we think of three guys, and that's John Philip Kaler, August Pieper, and John Schaller. There would be some who would include Adolf Heineke, who is usually considered the, the great, certainly the greatest dogmatician of the Wisconsin Synod. He and his sons compiled a four-volume dogmatics over time. So some would include Heineke in, I guess, a quartet rather than a trio. But I'd say most would just have Kaler, August Pieper, and John Schaller. Yeah, it's it's worth pointing out maybe for Missouri Synod folks that this is August Pieper, not Francis Pieper. Right. Was it his older brother? I can't remember. There's actually, I don't know if you guys have ever heard the kind of famous story about the Pieper brothers. There were four Pieper brothers all of whom went to Concordia St. Louis. The the three Wauwatosa guys, Kaler, Pieper, Schaller, all were graduates of St. Louis and had Walther as their professor. There's actually a somewhat famous story about Walther's comment about the four Pieper boys, three of whom served as seminary presidents. There was Franz Pieper, who of course was at St. Louis, and August was a, was the, I think the, well, I think Reinhold may have been the next oldest Reinhold was the president of the Springfield Seminary. August was eventually the president of our seminary. And then the youngest was Anton. So apparently Walther once said, Franz is both hardworking and intelligent. Uh, (laughs) Reinhold is hardworking, but not intelligent. Uh, August (laughs) is intelligent, but not hardworking. And Anton is neither hardworking nor intelligent. So, uh, <laughs> so he apparently got the short end of the stick. Walter, Walter was a delicate chap. When it- yeah. And, well, you can, you can read as many history books as you want. You're not going to find too much about Anton Pieper anywhere. So. <laughs> he had a lot to live up to. You know, he's, yep, exactly. he's the Baldwin brother you never heard of. Exactly. <laughs> so then uh, let's just really briefly uh, run. So we've got Pieper down. Yep. Who, who would Kaler be then? in this situation. Kaler was very much a son of the Wisconsin Synod. His father, Philip, was one of the earliest 
pastors in the Wisconsin Synod. And while a lot of people give John Bodding, who was the second president of the Wells, and Adolf Haneke a lion's share of the credit for moving Wisconsin from kind of a wishy-washy unionistic Lutheranism early on to a more confessional Lutheranism. In a lot of ways, if you study the primary material, you'll find that Philip Kaler was really the guy behind the scenes who was agitating for Wisconsin becoming more confessional. So that would have been the household that JP grew up in. JP from very early in life showed a lot of just amazing gifts besides his, you know, great theological mind. He was he was an artist, painter, he was a musician. So he was he was just a renaissance man. I don't think he was a Packer fan. <laughs> you know, it was, would be a strike against him in some quarters. But, um, but I mean Kaler was just just a, a really brilliant guy. So he went to the St. Louis Seminary. He served just one parish in the wells up in Two Rivers, Wisconsin, near Manitowoc. And then after about seven years in the parish, he was called to our Northwestern College as a dean and professor of, I think, like Latin and history. And then in 1900, was called to our Wauwatosa Seminary, where he served the, the rest of his the rest of his ministry. And then Schaller. Yeah, John Schaller, son of Gottfried Schaller. Gottfried or Gottlieb, I can't remember his dad's name, but he was the he was the young man that Walther won over from Lay's view of, of ministry. And so Schaller grew up largely on the on the St. Louis campus there, Concordia campus, or at least in St. Louis. His dad served as pastor there with Walther in St. Louis. Schaller served after graduating from Concordia at a couple different parishes, and then eventually was the president of our Dr. Martin Luther College in New Ulm, Minnesota, before being called to Wauwatosa in 1908 to be the president of the Wauwatosa Seminary. He was he was kind of the mediator in a lot of ways, the buffer between Kaler and Pieper, who were very strong personalities. As long as Schaller was around, it seemed like those guys got along. But Schaller, unfortunately, passed away very quickly in 1920. There was an influenza epidemic on the on the campus, I guess, in the area there in, in the Milwaukee area. And he got sick, and within a number of days, he died. the The seminary was left without without its great leader, and from 1920 on, for that next decade, there was a lot of rocky relationships in Wauwatosa. I think we'll get into that a little bit later. Well, very interesting, and that really sets the stage for us to talk about the controversies and the and the doctrines and everything. Yeah. And interesting to note, we aren't dealing with just some rogue men who come in. These are real theological heavyweights who are entering the fray here when it comes to what's coming. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fiddly. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, 
and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelman Heidi, joined by Reverend Pete Prangy, talking the Wauwatosa theology. Well, we just had a really good biographical rundown and introduction to the movement. So let's take a look at the theological background here. And I would guess the first place to start would be the election controversy. So what is that? And that's certainly something that speaks to both Wisconsin and Missouri synods. Pete, why don't you give us a rundown of that? Yeah, the Gnadenwahlstreit is the German for that. That's a kind of a fun one to say. <laughs> uh, I've been doing some study in early Missouri Synod history, and there was a there was a guy who was with the Saxons in St. Louis by the name of Kliegel, who the Missourians didn't really like too much, apparently. But eventually, he and Walther had some time together and began to see eye to eye on some things. And he went from St. Louis up to Milwaukee, and then he caused trouble up in Milwaukee. Because Kliegel, the Buffalo Synod guys would always say, Kliegel has this Calvinistic view of election. And it's interesting because Kliegel said to Walther, this doctrine of election is something that we really need to talk about. Kliegel, I think, leaned pretty heavily on Walther's bondage of the will. And so sounded sometimes a bit Calvinistic, maybe, because people read Walther's bondage of the will that way. Well, if you if you read some of those early issues of the Lutheraner, there are some essays in there by Missouri guys that even use the terminology intua tu fide. Intua tu fide means in view of faith. The idea by some Lutheran theologians uh, using that term the suggestion was the way that God chose people from all eternity is that he looked into the future and chose this person to be saved because he saw that they would believe in him and preserve, be preserved in the faith until the very end. So even some Missouri guys used that language early on. And Walther eventually started to clean that language up. And himself, when he was dealing with that, probably said some things that went a little bit too far, at least too far for people who were paying close attention. And then they started accusing Walther of being a crypto-Calvinist. Calvinist, you know, who's, who's hiding behind the trees a little bit. Because, of course, Calvin's doctrine of election or predestination was that God chooses some to be saved and others to be damned. And they heard Walther talking that way. They, they felt that that was really what Walther was, was suggesting. And so there was a big controversy within the Synodical Conference in the late 1870s. Walther on one side and a former colleague of his, Friedrich Schmidt, on the other side. It seems that really, in my reading, what got Walther most riled up was that Schmidt called Walther a heretic. <laughs> and, those, and those are fighting words. That's that's something that I've really discovered in my reading of this early history. Walther was very, very careful to distinguish between a weak brother, a schismatic, 
and a heretic. A weak brother is someone who just doesn't maybe know what he's talking about or doesn't really understand the issues and you have to be very patient with a weak brother. A schismatic is is someone who has latched on to a a false idea but doesn't really understand why it's false but just has difficulty letting it go. A heretic is someone who knows that they're teaching false doctrine and for whatever reason wants to hold on to that false doctrine. And so for Walther to be called a heretic, somebody who's purposefully trying to mislead the church, Walther says, if you want war, then then we'll have war. So that that was a bridge too far as far as Walther was concerned. And I, you know, Walther is is a beautiful example of ironic, really ecumenical guy. He's he sometimes gets a bum rap for, you know, being this kind of you know, stick in the mud, old Lutheran who doesn't have the time of day for anybody who doesn't say it exactly the way that he says it. That's that's just, that was not true of Walther. But when he got into a theological battle with someone who was accusing Walther, especially of being a heretic, that was not going to, you know, simply be dismissed by Walter. Walther. He, he was going to fight that one out. And so the election controversy at that time, just it it blew up the synodical conference because the Ohio Synod, who had been one of the charter members, ended up leaving as a result. The Norwegian Synod withdrew from the synodical conference because they had, you know, some internal issues with with election that they wanted to get sorted out. Yeah, it was it was a devastating controversy to American Lutheranism that we still truly are feeling the ramification of which we are still feeling ramifications today. Lutheranism kind of washed itself out in a lot of ways through the election controversy. While I would love to continue on talking about the election controversy, maybe the question to ask here is, in your opinion, how does the effects of this controversy and all of the fallout that comes after it contribute to the rise of the Wauwatosa theology. Yeah, Kaler picked up the Electron controversy in the early 20th century and he he said you guys are, you know, battling one another, but you're all using the wrong weapons. You're all going back to the dogmaticians and trying to pit Gerhardt against Gerhardt or Luther against Luther. You can dig around in the dog, dogmaticians and and find people who seem to be saying what you're saying and using them as you, the proof that you're right. And Kaler said, how about if we actually go back to the scriptures and, and see what the scriptures have to say? Because no one had really thought of that. You know, let's <laughs> let's go back to the scriptures and see what they have to say about this. Well, and if I'm not mistaken, isn't the whole concept of intuitive fide, that comes from the dogmatic tradition, right? Absolutely. I mean, it has a very yep. strong following in Lutheran orthodoxy. Right. There were any number of, of Lutheran dogmaticians that used that type of phraseology. And again, when people start using phrases that you don't find in Scripture, you have to ask the question, why? What what were they guarding against? What was the controversy in their time that 
led them to say it the way that they said it. And if you'd actually go back and study the history, you'd say, oh, I get what they were concerned about, but we're dealing with a different issue now. And so we have to be careful that we not simply adopt their language and apply it to a completely different set of circumstances because you end up going you know, from one extreme to the other rather than going back to the scriptures where you're always going to find that narrow scriptural, we would say Lutheran road where you avoid crashing or, or falling off one side of the road or the other. One of the phrases that, that was used in those discussions was analogy of faith, that we can't say anything doctrinally that goes against the analogy of faith. That, that was something that, that Kaler really felt was necessary to deal with. What are, what are we even talking about when we, when we speak about the analogy of faith? Well, I mean, from the way that I understand it, and I have to admit, I'm pretty heavily influenced by the Wauwatosa theologians on this because of their reaction against it. The analogy of faith, and please correct me if, if I'm wrong on this, is the idea that we have to base our interpretation of any given passage on, I mean, lots of other passages, so that you're always you're always looking away from where you are right now in order to determine what it is that the scripture is saying. And I, I realize that's a little polemic, and maybe you can kind of help me be a little little bit less polemic in, in this. How would you define it? Yeah, I wouldn't say you sound polemic at all. Uh, it sounds good to me. <laughs> you know, the, the challenge with this idea of an analogy of faith is that what it suggests is that from our human perspective, the Bible ought never contradict itself. Right. And of course, from God's perspective, his word is never contradictory. I mean, he always means what he means. And he never talks out of both sides of his mouth. But from our sinful human perspective, we have to admit that we run up against contradictions all the time as we read the scriptures. In fact, you might even say they're kind of almost purposefully put in there. Luther called it the theology of the cross. I mean, there are contradictions that, that require us to have faith. Where, where we simply believe the word rather than trying to take the scriptures and turn them and twist them so that they fit into our nice, neat, logical system. And that's what these guys were trying to do with the doctrine of election. It all has to make sense. And what to them, what Walther was saying, what Walther was arguing didn't make sense to say on the one hand that God has not elected anyone to be damned, but on the other hand, he has elected individuals to be saved from all eternity, but it was not an election into a tufide. That just, that didn't make sense to them at all because it seemed like God's grace was then not universal, that he didn't love everyone. And what they were having difficulty understanding was that's, of course, the great question of election. Why some, not others? 
They wanted mm-hmm. to be able to answer that question and they tried to answer it with this notion of the analogy of faith. It, it can't contradict. What do you think leads to this kind of perspective, this, this wanting to sort of box everything in and kind of grid everything out and not embrace, we'll say, paradox or something like that? Do you, do you think there's a scholastic tendency there or, or what? I think it's good old-fashioned human nature. We don't like we don't like contradictions. We, it, that makes us uneasy. We don't we don't like faith. We <laughs> we like reason. It has to be reasonable. Of course, you know you can go to any any section of scripture, but you just think of what Paul has to say in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter two, where what does God do? He sends this kind of miserable looking preacher without eloquent speech. And what does he give him for a message? Nothing but Christ crucified. It just doesn't make any sense. If you want to bring people to faith, you would think you got to send somebody who's good looking and who has the kind of message that people are going to latch on to. But of course, the irony there, Paul points out, is we do speak a wisdom among the mature. Those whom the Spirit lifts the veil for who see the wisdom of God and the power of God in Christ. And that, of course, doesn't just apply to the central themes of the gospel. Ultimately, it applies to the entire scriptures. And so to try and impose this analogy of faith where everything is reasonable, within Lutheranism, I would say the best analogy of faith is the theology of the cross, where it requires faith. It's it's contradictory, but therefore it is true. You know, you could you could point out any any number of examples where that's the reality. So Kaler Kaler admonishes then to this analogy of faith, and how was how was Kaler received? Not well. Not well. <laughs> I mean, that I mean, this was this is kind of standard dogmatic practice going back many centuries. Again, the 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 phrase "analogy of faith" or "rule of faith" was something that these guys could pull, you know, out of the writings of very early church fathers. But in his very long essay, that's not at all easy to to, to read the analogy of faith. Kaler goes not only through an exegesis of Romans chapter 12, verse 6, where Paul uses that phrase, but then also through the history of the the use of that term and how the different church fathers and theologians had used it. And, and Kaler said, basically, you guys are all making this more complicated than it needs to be. Very good. So then one of the other things we come to is the church and ministry debate. Yep. What might be a, a simple way to, to explain that, that, that bone of contention? Uh, a simple way. Well, again, you need to realize and remember that the Wauwatosa guys, these three guys who were on the forefront of, of that debate, they were all trained at St. Louis. They all had, had Walther for for dogmatics and pastoral theology. And so at least in our circles, in our Wisconsin Synod circles, as as we read 
Walther through the lens of the Wauwatosa theologians, we find Walther saying really most of the same things that the Wauwatosa guys did. They were dealing with some they were dealing with somewhat different circumstances. But again, in in my recent study this summer of Walther, of course, uh, coming out of the whole Stephanist, you know, cult, basically, where the, this the, <laughs> Oof. it was. I mean, hey, guys, Second Great Awakening sorry. in America, man. They yeah, weren't it, unique. It, it was crazy. It was crazy what was going on there. But their their great fear of this Episcopal church government. And, you know, the swing that takes place there within, within that setting where, where, Walther, uh, where Walther landed on that. Like I say, in, in our circles, when we read Walther, we read him very much through the lens of the Wauwatosa theologians and see them saying mostly similar things for sure. So maybe, maybe for the sake of just say the, the average layman then. How would you summarize that position that you would say that Walther is holding and like say saying the same things as the Wauwatosa theologians? And why would you say that was, why was that a question at all? Yeah. I mean, Walther was dealing with a, a day and age where most congregations had one full-time minister of the gospel. It was the pastor. And not only was he preaching the sermons and administering the sacraments and visiting the sick, but he was also teaching the school. So the thought of there being this one minister who's called to do gospel ministry in our midst, being the pastor, that was just very natural. What the question started coming up, though, more often, what about the teachers who are, who are serving in our schools? Are they ministers of the gospel? Are they called to administer the gospel, especially in word, to the people in the congregation, especially the children, obviously? And where Kaler and the other Wauwatosa guys ended up on that was, absolutely, they, they have divine calls, not as far as, not the same scope as a call to serve as pastor, but to have a congregation who's asking them to proclaim the gospel on behalf of the congregation. School teachers also have a divine call to, to proclaim the gospel publicly within the confines of the church. Now, do you think that this is sort of interpreted a little bit differently today? Our, our schools don't necessarily look the same or operate the same. So it's a yeah. little bit hard for us maybe to sort of see it through the lens of, of this time. Yeah, and of course, our our wells our well schools largely have teachers who have gone through our own training system. They're not hired. I think. What do you do? You commission your teachers in the in the LCMS. I I forget what terminology is. Yeah, is teachers would be. And correct me if I'm wrong, Zellen, but teachers are commissioned ministers within the synod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's and right. the source and the source of your teachers are not necessarily from your own training system, correct? Um, I mean, you, we try. Yeah, yeah we can try really hard, but okay. not necessarily. Yeah. Not necessarily. Yeah. yeah, and within our small kind of parochial church body, we've managed, for the most part, to have teachers that we have trained ourselves that 
that are certified by us. And so they receive a divine call. I mean, that's the way that we, that we talk about them. You know, there's, there are a lot of different paths that you could follow in this whole discussion. One of the things that will sometimes come up is that, you know, teachers, the work of the teacher is not essential to the work of the church. And therefore, for a teacher to to no longer be there, the church is still there. We wouldn't we wouldn't see either a school teacher's uh, position as being essential to the work of the gospel, but it is part of the the well being of the church that we have people who serve in those capacities. So, you, so you would make a distinction then between the pastoral office and then the, yeah. and then this ministry here, okay? In that in that respect, the past the, the the office of pastors obviously has has been the most comprehensive office in terms of use of word and sacrament. There's no question about it. And teachers in our circles are not called to administer sacraments, so they are they are called to proclaim the word. So there's scope of ministry is really really important. So then let's take a look then at some or at a couple of significant historical events. What is Trinity Cincinnati and what does that have to do with Wauwatosa? Yeah, already before the controversy that transpired at the Missouri Synod Church, Trinity Cincinnati, already before then there was a lot of discussion about about church and ministry. But what happened at Trinity Cincinnati, as I understand the, the story there was a gentleman who had his son in school there and ended up pulling him out because it was still a German language school and he wanted his son to learn English in the public schools. And the pastors were not happy with that man's decision and and ended up excommunicating him. So there was a big brouhaha about, about this man being excommunicated for that reason whether or not we know the whole story there, I'm not entirely sure. I think there may have been a, a bit more than simply you're pulling your kid out of school. We're going to excommunicate you. I suspect that that man may have may have said a few things that you know got him kicked out of the game. <laughs> right. Funny how there's always a little bit more, you know, to that. Yeah, there's always a little more to the story than than that. Well, anyway, eventually the district, the Missouri Synod district officials, even synodical officials, I think Franz Pieper was the synod president at that time. They did an investigation and they concluded that that excommunication was not valid. And the congregation and pastors refused to overturn the excommunication. So the the pastor, and I believe the congregation as well, ended up being suspended from Missouri Synod membership until they got their house in order. And rather than wanting to do that, this congregation with its pastors made an appeal to the Wisconsin Synod to see if they might be able to get into membership in the Wisconsin Synod if Missouri didn't want them anymore. And the Wisconsin Synod, they formed a committee and they studied it all. And apparently that committee came to a slightly different conclusion than their Missouri brethren and there were some apparently who were even somewhat advocating that Wisconsin should take this Cincinnati congregation into membership within the Wisconsin Senate. Of course, that wasn't going to happen because Missouri, Wisconsin were in fellowship with one another. But basically, it was one of those situations where people were sticking their noses into other people's business. 
And the question really began to be, well, what business does a synod have in a congregation's business to begin with? Is synod church or is it only the local congregation that is church? And of course, again, coming out of what they had experienced under Stephan, those early Missourians were really, really fearful of any type of Episcopal type of governmental thinking. They were, after, after what happened with Stephan, they were going to maintain their congregational autonomy at all costs. But personally, again, as my, as my study has led me to conclude over the summer, at least I'm, I'm getting drawing that conclusion, that whole thing with Stefan really, really colored their thinking in a way that maybe didn't allow them to go back and, and think this all through. How, yes, of course, within a local community, within a local congregation, you have a ministry of the gospel there where a pastor is concerned for the souls of his people. But is it not wise is it not for the well-being of the church that that pastor also has some oversight exercised over him as well? And isn't that type of oversight also a ministry of the gospel where, you know, a, a district president or synodical official in love uses law and gospel in the case of a, of a pastor who needs some some direction, some encouragement, some rebuke even at times isn't that isn't that also church isn't that gospel ministry law and gospel ministry that's taking place there well within missouri again th that was the kind of thinking that they they were not willing to at all entertain but the wawatosa guys they they thought that through and they said why why should we say that ministry only happens within a particular local congregation? Isn't law and gospel also taking place at a larger level as well, or you know, at a, in, at a, in a more general level? When you read Luther's Duties of an Evangelical Lutheran Synod, I think that's the title of that essay, that's, that's, Wau I mean, that's Wauwatosa thinking on the <laughs> relationship between a synod the congregations and its called workers. I mean, that's 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 what those guys were saying. Um, they were basically parroting Walther in that essay, I would say. Well, very good stuff. With that, we're going to have to go to a quick break here. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. We 
We are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken here with Reverend Pete Prangy. Prangy. There we go. I knew I'd mess it up before That's the okay. end of the, the podcast. Prangy. Um, talking Wauwatosa theology. Let's wrap up uh, this discussion of the Trinity Cincinnati situation and see how that what that has to do with the later Wauwatosa theology or the, or the Wauwatosa conversation, I guess we'd say. So how would how would you tie them together, Pete? I mean, how would you make the connection between what was going on with uh, the church ministry debates, especially with uh, Trinity Cincinnati, and how that affects Kaler and Pieper and Schaller as well? Yeah, well, it was still very early on in in their thinking, in their you know as far as their pro- the progress that they were making and in, in thinking this all through and understanding it. Kaler was really the one who had had gotten the ball rolling, asking the important questions. And he had drawn he had drawn some conclusions as far as church and ministry, but both Pieper and Schaller were kind of lagging behind a little bit. And so he really encouraged those two guys to start digging into the church and ministry question. And so you'll see a lot of the a lot of the essays that are even in the Wawatosa theology volumes, a lot of those essays are actually written by by both Pieper and Schaller. Pieper in particular took up that effort, even to the point where um, Pieper ended up calling it Meine Amstlera, my ministry teaching, um, <laughs> which Kaler didn't argue with him, but, uh, but Pieper liked taking the credit for that for sure. What's particularly interesting, I would say, is not even so much the whole church and ministry discussion itself, as interesting as that is. It, it was really the, the development that they began to have in thinking through the distinction between things that are commanded legally by God as opposed to evangelical institutions. Schaller, Schaller especially, I'd say, is just, there's just some golden essays by Schaller, which really help you think through how it is that God brings things into being. He really cautioned against always thinking of God's commands as being legalistic commands, that, that we don't think of it that way, that there are these these things that are brought into being by God's word, the gospel, and that, yeah, God often uses the imperative to talk about these things, but we dare not think of them as being legal commands. One of the, one of the examples that Schaller uh, uses is when Jesus called to Lazarus, the dead man in the grave, and he said, Lazarus, come out. Of course, that's an imperative. It sounds like a command that he's giving to Lazarus. But the dead man had no power to, of course, obey that command. It was the word itself that brought it into being. And that's the way these guys talked then about the ministry of the gospel as well. They felt like the St. Louis faculty, uh, Franz Pieper in particular, they were very caught up in this whole notion of only the office of pastor has a divine mandate and only the local congregation has a divine mandate. And they were thinking of it from a very, from the Wauwatosa view, a very legalistic perspective. 
And the Wauwatosa guys were really, really trying to get the St. Louis faculty um, to, to think about it differently and ask, ask, ask themselves some of those questions. But it was a little bit like talking to a brick wall. Um, they, <laughs> and of course, you had family connections there. You had August on one side, Franz on the other. These guys, many of them had gone to school together. There was always a little bit of a big brother, little sister relationship between Missouri and Wisconsin. And they're there, Wisconsin. I know that you feel like maybe we're not saying things the right way, but of course we are because we're Missouri and we, you know. <laughs> so there there was there was that dynamic going on there for sure. And it seems like one of the things that that was a little bit of a deal breaker for the Missourians was when J.P. Kaler came out with his church history in 1917. And in that church history, which really deals with the entire span of church history up until the present, until 1917, in that church history, Kaler mentions the controversy. He didn't use that word, but the, the debate that was going on at that time between the Wisconsin and Missouri synods on church and ministry. And Kaler's comment is really very ironic. He says, we haven't drawn the same conclusions, but we're, you know, we're in fellowship with one another and we both cling to the truth of God's word, but we're just having some difficulty working out our terminology. But he even expresses a hope that that will come as long as we keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Well, apparently Franz Pieper saw him within that year of that being published and and said to Kaler, we can't recommend your history for reading because apparently that comment was just too much for Franz to stomach. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, it, it kind of went, kind of went downhill from there. Wisconsin and, and Missouri certainly made attempts to come to some understanding on terminology. But I think part of the difficulty that we've had is we've come with our own theological baggage in those kinds of discussions. And too often we're not we're not willing to maybe let go of some of our presuppositions and ask ourselves, how, how did we end up here in the first place? I, I mean, I honestly think a good place to start in discussion of church and ministry is to go back, as I've been doing this summer, and look at church and ministry from the first immigration of the Saxons. What happened there? What were those guys, what, what were those guys afraid of? after the whole Stefan debacle and how, why did they end up where they ended up? I, th I, th I think if you connect the dots, you say, Oh, I, I get what their concern is. And we have to be cognizant of those concerns. We have to make sure that we're saying it in a way, not only that we're understood, but also that we're not misunderstood. And I think too often we're not careful enough to, to think through it that way that we not step on or push people's buttons in a way that we're not even understanding or recognizing when we have those kinds of theological discussions. And, you know, let's to, to just comment on Kaler again. Kaler said in his analogy of faith essay, when you're dealing in doctrinal controversy, not only do we have to make an effort to understand a person, your opponent, how they want to be understood, Kaler almost suggested you almost have to you almost have to put words in your opponent's mouth 
to under to understand them the way that that you think they want to be understood to put the absolute best construction on another person's words Kaler just really tried to bend over backwards it seems to do that and that's how you make progress when especially of course when you're both coming at a doctrinal or theological question from the ultimately the same perspective which is we find our answers in the scriptures let's let's go back to the scriptures and talk about the scriptures let's do this so with with all of this then and i think we're kind of coming towards the 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 formative period of the wawatosa th- uh, theology would you say that it was i mean how would how would you put it forged in in these through these controversies absolutely. i mean was- yep absolutely it it was the election controversy and the church and ministry debates that really gave the the Wauwatosa theology its birth. And again, I'm not even that crazy about calling it the Wauwatosa theology. Sure. These are, these are Reformation principles. You go back to the scriptures. You do what Luther did, who just asked those tough questions of the Roman Catholic system. Wait a second. How did we end up here? And is this really right? What does the scripture actually say about this? And of course, Luther was surprised that other people didn't just go along with him because he found all of these things of the scriptures that seemed so evident, so clear. But the Roman church wanted to hold on to the system that it had created. I mean, that was, it still does to this day. We all like that. That's more comfortable for us to hold on to. <laughs> the system we've created for ourselves. Well, and would you say then, as maybe a kind of way before we go into the, the fallout of the Wauwatosa theology, would you say that the whole reason why we call it the Wauwatosa theology is because, well, I mean, applying this kind of critique and self-examination to ourselves is something we don't like doing? We don't like doing it. I don't like doing it. Um, <laughs> I'm... I'm much more comfortable thinking the way that I've always thought. Sure. My dear wife has taught me on any number of occasions that maybe my thinking isn't entirely in line with with reality. And <laughs> yeah, and of course you too know how valuable that is for a pastor to to be able to to listen to members to to not just come to snap judgments to try to understand situations to then also make an attempt to apply law and gospel in a surgical way that is is going to be able you know to hit home to the best of our ability i mean that that's valuable stuff as opposed to just taking a one size fits all approach to ministry and this is what I was taught at the seminary, and this is I'm I'm going to apply God's word to each situation exactly the same way every time. I mean, you're going to butcher pastoral ministry if you take that approach. <laughs> and and again, that's that's a big thing of what of what Kaler especially expresses that we have to teach our seminarians not only to think dogmatically because dogmatics helps us think through things clearly to analyze stuff, but also history and exegesis, which always gives us pause, which always leads us to say, 
am I understanding this correctly? Have I thought this all through? What am I not thinking about? What questions do I need to ask here? Do I have the whole story? Kaler argued that dual, you know, that two-sided or two-side brain type of thinking makes the very best pastors. So it was, it was really a, a pastoral, ultimately a pastoral concern that Kaler had as he was as as he and his colleagues were training future pastors in the Wisconsin Synod. Right. So as as reasonable and as beautiful as the Wauwatosa theology often is, unfortunately there is fallout. And and that sort of brings us into you know the real nuts and bolts of the controversy here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about WF Bites? Uh William Bites. William Bites was actually uh, best friends with my grandfather, E. Arnold Sitz. They um, began to be bosom buddies already as sophomores in high school, went through high school and college together. Bill Bites actually went to a general counsel seminary in the Chicago area for the first two years of his seminary education because he wanted to have a seminary education where the where the teaching was done in English. Um, so, But after spending two years at that general council seminary, he came to the Wauwatosa Seminary for the last year of his seminary studies. Think of that these days, you know, where what if what if one of our classmates had gone to an ELCA seminary for a couple of years and but now he's going to finish off his seminary education at one of our seminaries i don't think that would happen anymore but apparently that was not a problem for for the Wauwatosa faculty so they ended up graduating together in 1917 from the Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary in Wauwatosa bill bites was assigned to a congregation in Tucson Arizona and my grandfather signed to a congregation in Wisconsin. My grandfather actually resigned after just one year of ministry and moved to Arizona to work on the railroads. Bill Bites encouraged him to come down there. And eventually, my grandfather got back into pastoral ministry and served alongside Bill Bites there in Tucson for, for a little less than a year. But then Bill Bites followed a call to Rice Lake, Wisconsin, which was in our synod's western Wisconsin district. And there were a number of number of things that happened, coincidental things, I would say, but some small controversies, not only at our Northwestern College, there was there was some rampant stealing that was investigated in kind of a high-handed way, I would say. Some students were expelled and and it was it was just kind of a mess. And then there were a couple female teachers at one of the Wisconsin congregations in Fort Atkinson who charged their pastors with a pastor with false doctrine. They ended up getting suspended, but there were pastors that came to these girls' defense. But there were just, there were a number of just kind of uneasy things that happened over the course of a couple of years. And uh, sooner than later, there was a small group of pastors that found themselves to be kindred spirits who were just not happy with the way that district officials and synod officials were handling things. And one theme of the Wauwatosa theology that that Kaler particularly emphasized that we haven't talked about yet is the whole idea of Verstockung, hardening. Kaler would talk about 
how it's, and, and we've talked about this actually, how it's just natural for us to become hardened in our thinking. You know, you just get into a rut theologically, physically, emotionally, you just, you just fall into a system. And so Kaler said, it's natural for a church and a church body to do that too, where you just, the, the, that vitality of the early life goes away and you just, there's a hardening of the, of the, of the spiritual arteries. And these young pastors saw these things as evidence that the Wisconsin Synod was falling under the judgment of hardening. And Bill Bites took the lead in calling the Wisconsin Synod to repentance. So he wrote a paper that uh, he delivered at a pastoral conference. His audience that day was not really prepared for the things that Bill Bites had to say. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. He hadn't he hadn't really prepared them for this sermon. And it, it kind of, I mean, they, they accused Bites of of judging hearts and, you know, just just using hyperbolic language that was maybe not the most pastoral uh, at that time. I should point out uh, to you, uh, Pete, and also to our listeners in general, as we are kind of coming towards the end here eventually of this podcast, we are intending to go on and talk about some of these concepts in, in greater detail, especially things like um, hardening and Kaler's essay of legalism among us is something we intend to go into. Mm -hmm. The paper itself, as I believe it's, it was called even by its opponents, Bites's sermon that he was giving, is something that we might want to to dig into in a little bit more detail, but how would you, I mean, how would you put it in, in a nutshell? I mean, the, the kinds of things that he was saying. There, there was no one who was not up for a little bit of criticism in, in that paper. He castigated the Lutheran church, seminary professors, who he just called, they're just time servers. They're just putting in their time. <laughs> He's no fan of chicken suppers. Yeah, exactly. Right. He, <laughs> <laughs> maybe the the easiest name to call Bill Bites is he was a bit of a pietist. I mean, that's just when you read that paper, he well, would you say pietist or or prophet? Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of both. But he wanted he wanted people to be excited about their Christianity, and he just he saw people just kind of cashing it in. Of course, this was all happening during the Roaring Twenties. There was, I think, a, a, a measure of fear. Of course, it also this was happening after World War One. I, I, I think, I think the church at that time, the Luther, the German Lutheran Church in America, was was struggling with its identity, and I don't think it's dissimilar from kind of how we feel today in a in a society that's becoming more and more secular. And, you know, we got to get our people fired up. We got to get them out there, you know, sharing their faith with others. And we, we have too many time servers, people who are just kind of cashing it in. And, and Bill Bites really felt this urgent need to preach this sermon of repentance. He, he just, he, he wasn't careful enough. He, he, he hadn't really, you know, he kind of hit people over the head with a two by four. And 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 they weren't ready for it. What's interesting is later on, one of his associates, 
pastor by the name of Paul Hensel, he, he wrote a paper where he actually compared Bites's paper to essays of August Pieper. And he said, Bill Bites is not saying anything differently from what August Pieper was saying. The difference, though, is that August Pieper was fairly well known and had a reputation. Bill Bites, you know, didn't have Pieper's cachet. So it's one thing to take that from old August because we're kind of used to that. <laughs> to have this young startup pastor trying to do his best August Pieper imp- uh, impersonation. Well, you know, it, I don't know about you guys, but in our circles, you're not, you're not allowed to talk at a pastoral conference until you've been in the ministry for five years, you know, um, <laughs> unwritten rule. And, and here's this new guy coming in and he's, you know, castigating us. Who does he think he is? And it, it's the district officials got involved. Um, eventually, the seminary was asked to offer its good octon, its opinion of the Bites paper. It, to my knowledge, it's the only good octon that our seminary faculty has ever issued. Hmm. And Kaler was the president at that time, and Kaler did his very best to not make that happen. You know, he, he, he didn't even offer his own draft of an opinion of the Bites paper. He begged off. He, he was designing our new seminary building that was going to be built a, a couple of years later. And so when the faculty got together and brought their var- various opinions, it was decided that, that Peeper's Gudocton would essentially serve as the seminary Gudocton. Well, again, you got August Peeper writing an opinion of a Bites paper. And what kind of words does he use to describe the author? He called Bites an ignoramus. I mean, <laughs> it's maybe not the best way to approach controversy. And Kaler accepted, Kaler accepted Peeper's Gudocton under this condition that he wanted to go and talk to Bites one-on-one. So he made a trip up there. The The understanding Kaler had was this good octon is a private document until I have an opportunity to go over it with Bites. Well, he took the train up there and uh, another pastor picked him up in the car. And as they're driving to Bites' house, this pastor starts arguing with Kaler about this good octon. And Kaler's like, how did you, how did you get this paper? <laughs> Well, because his colleagues had published it mm-hmm. against his expressed desire that it be a private conversation at first. Well, of course, he knew that as soon as that good Acton was published, Bites was going to be in no mood to have you know a, a sensible conversation about it, and it just it just got worse and worse and worse. Kaler himself ended up writing his own. He called it his air trog, the fruit of his investigation, where he charged Bites with less than careful language, but he also charged those who were reading Bites' paper with not not really understanding where this guy was coming from. You're Essentially, he would say of them, you're judging Bites just as much as you feel he's judging you. And you really need to understand where people are coming from. Don't be so quick to judge. Keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Well, of course, when Kaler now is publicly disagreeing with his seminary colleagues, 
that was not going to fly. Eventually, it came down to, you know, high noon showdown where Kaler refused to bend to the will of his seminary faculties and or seminary faculty colleagues and to the seminary board. They ended up firing him, the board did, because they um, just saw the disagreement within the faculty as insurmountable. And so, so Kaler became the sacrificial lamb of, of that entire controversy. We're going to stop right there. We're actually going to take another break, and we'll actually be back with a, another segment of Word Fitly Spoken. Are listening to a word fitly spoken, Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi, and Reverend Pete Prangy talking Wauwatosa theology and Wauwatosa history. We just heard the sad news of JPK's expulsion, uh, the fallout from the Bites paper, and, uh, and other things that have really just been been building up and building up. So it does end uh, on a bit of a sad note, worldly speaking. You know the characters involved, but. Wauwatosa still speaks, and we still have their writings. And is there a legacy today, and what can we take away from the Wauwatosa men? There certainly is a legacy. I'd say the the danger of the legacy of the Wauwatosa theologians is the same danger we face with the legacy of Luther or Walther or any of those other great theologians. I mean, you could name them all. And that is, we not actually do what the Wauwatosa theologians encouraged us to do, and that is, go back to the scriptures, go back to the Lutheran confessions, dig into those first and foremost, because, of course, those are, I mean, the the scriptures are the one source of our doctrine, and our our Lutheran confessions are the norm that, that norms us. So to really make those, of course, our primary research materials, rather than making the Wauwatosa theologians our primary resource material. That's something that we're forever tempted to do, where um, we, we say, yeah, this must be right because the Wauwatosa theologians said it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would have those guys spinning in their graves because that's that's really not the intent at all. So the best legacy or the best way that we can put into practice the legacy of the Wauwatosa theologians is to certainly to read them, understand them, to enjoy them, but then also do what they themselves really encouraged us to do. And that is go dig into, go dig into it yourselves. Do the exegetical study. Do the historical study. Think outside the box. Don't be a legalist. 
don't allow just because we've done it this way to to be the rule by which you practice life or practice pastoral theology, etc. Kaler makes a comment in his history of the Wisconsin Synod how um, guys would be in Walther's pastoral theology class and just take down notes and then get into pastoral ministry and just follow the notes that you know Professor Walther had given us back in the day as to how to handle every situation. Kaler just really discourages that type of approach to ministry. And the way that we avoid that approach is by doing what Luther did, doing what the Wauwatosa theologians did, doing what any good Lutheran pastor will do. And that is keep studying, keep keep digging into this for sure. I know one thing that I have personally benefited from the Wauwatosa theologians having read them. I mean, like you said, yeah, there's always a danger that we're going to make them into the authorities, which is just ironic beyond measure. But I find it helpful to be so self-critical. I mean, mm-hmm. to, to be exactly. so self-examine uh, exam- myself, especially even in the most hallowed of traditions. I mean, even I mean, is it Kaler or is it is it Peeper? You have to correct me here, Pete. Uh, that has the the comment about like the word Trinity as we use it. Do you, do you remember what I'm talking about? No, that doesn't ring a bell. Okay, I'm pretty sure it's one of them, and says like even words that have that kind of long usage, we should accept them after we've done you know our homework kind of thing mm-hmm. to see to go through the same struggles to think through these issues even in these things that seem so basic to us, not because we're just being contrarians, right. but to really make it our own, to really to, so that we're able to explain it in a way that is vivid, in a way that is fresh, in a way that uh, really continues to express the same truth from age to age. And right. that is what I've really gotten out of uh, reading, reading these theologians. Right. And, and it's, it's really a concept, of course, that Luther himself, he touches on again and again in the large catechism, how you're going to have simple folks who just, who just kind of need to be told this is, this is how it's done. You, you need to start, you know, el- elementary education. Why are we doing it this way? Because I told you so. I mean, and that's the way God treated his Old Testament people in a lot of ways, where it was, I'm going to give you all these rules and laws to follow in order to keep you safe, but to rejoice in the New Testament freedom that we have, the to, to be mature Christians, to understand why why do we do things the way that we do them? Why uh, why do we apply this to life the way that we do? And to to just continue to be examining that and being self-critical is is just essential and it's it's particularly essential for pastors to be self-critical not not in a you know in in a, in a way that's destructive but to always be thinking through how how is it that I approach my people with law and gospel and that I not just take a one size fits all approach to ministry is really really key very good now if someone wanted to learn more about this period of history and this controversy, whatever we want to call it, where where would they go? In our circles, the the first paper that probably was written on the 
Protestant Controversy in particular was written by Pastor Mark Chesky. That's a those are those a lot of those papers are available on of the Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary website. There's all kinds of wonderful essays available on our seminary website. Just go to their website and click on I think resources and there's essay files and you can just do a subject search of Protestant controversy or Wawatosa theology or gospel and you'll you'll have all kinds of things available. What's interesting about Mark Jeske's paper is written in I think 77 or 78. And of course the Protestant controversy had happened 50 years before. There was a little bit of an unwritten rule or embargo on writing about or discussing the Protestant controversy within the Wisconsin Synod. There had been you know, all kinds of papers flying around for about a, a decade. And once that thing got quote unquote settled, it wasn't really settled, but once it kind of shook out, there was kind of like, okay, we're going to stop talking about this now. We're not going to write about it. We'll let the Protestants do what they do. They write their journal, Faith Life, and we're not going to spend any time responding to it. And so Mark Jeske's paper in 77, 78 kind of, you might say, reopened that whole discussion. What makes Mark's paper interesting is he is a great-grandson of August Pieper. I am a great-grandson of J.P. Taylor. So <laughs> you can read the, the Pieper view and you can read the Kaler view. Um, <laughs> it's probably not quite that simple, um, but, but it, is, it is kind of interesting how that, how that worked itself out. Well, good stuff. Well, uh, any, any last words? No, just uh, appreciate the opportunity. I've, I've put in a lot, of, a lot of time. It's been very much a labor of love, and I still consider my work as a work in progress, because you can never really get to the bottom of it. And I'm just amazed how you can turn something up that just puts, you know, maybe a little bit of the story or maybe a whole chapter of the story in a, in a different light. So I, I'm continuing to, to work it out in my own mind and, and study it myself. So I'm, I'm just happy when somebody else cares. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, thank you so much. Certainly happy to have you. And hey, maybe maybe you'll come back and give us some more good stuff later on down the road. Sure, anytime. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. If you have comments, questions, complaints, whatever, check out our discussion group on Facebook, Word Fitly Posting. That's Word Fitly Posting with a P. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. God love you. And God bless.